Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, this is Daniel from the Cannonball here with a, uh, well, we have a special treat for y'all. This is kind of a, I guess, a bonus addition to some of the uh, usual output that we do. And we're we're, uh, we're really thrilled about it. This is for, uh, of course, uh, the Agora Network. Uh, we have sponsorships. And we've had a really special in the last few months. If you've been, if you've been listening to the show, of course, um, we have been talking about the online Great Books program. And so I'm really very thrilled to be able to share with y'all one of the leading lights of online great books is here to talk to yours truly. Uh, Claude actually had to sit this one out due to some uh, technical slash baby slash uh, who who knows what kind of issues, but (laughs) I think mostly mostly technical. So it's just going to be me and Scott here uh, talking, but uh, we have a really cool show lined up for y'all because... I think really because online great books lines up so well with what we do on the cannonball that we just had to have like an actual kind of, I don't know, a, a sit down chat about some great books with someone from online great books. So Scott Hambrick is here and uh, Scott, if you could please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit about what online great books is about. Well, um, you've already said my name. I'm Scott Hambrick and I own <laughs> onlinegreatbooks.com. Um, I've spent a lot of time as a small business person and, you know, doing business to business, uh, kind of small business and mm-hmm. kind of semi-retired from that now. And I've always been interested in the great books and run a great books group out of my home for years. And a friend of mine, Brett McKay, who owns and runs The Art of Manliness, he's in my home group and he's like, Hambrick, you've got to get this this out so more people can do it. You know, we need to get this, you know, in some sort of online environment. So I did. Um, we, we have I don't know, hundreds of people reading 
you know, books from the classical Greek era right now. They've signed up. We send them their books directly to their home. We send them reading reminders, text message reading reminders. We try to help people create a habit of reading the good stuff for three hours a week. And then we, in the great books tradition, we have a two-hour Socratic seminar that one of our one of our seminar hosts leads. And uh, we have just normal people, you know. We've mm-hmm. got we've got everybody from surgeons to the towel boy at the car wash, literally, uh, that are discussing, you know, the Iliad and Plato's Protagoras and, you know, books of the Western canon. And yeah. our list is a whole lot like Bloom's list. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, you know, they got, a, you know, they overlap 90%. So we're, yeah, reading, yeah. we're reading a lot of the books you guys are reading. And, uh, man, it's just, you know, I've had people email me and say, you know, thank you so much. I can't believe it. I just finished the Iliad and it's the first book I've ever read. Yeah. You know, so, so we're really um, we're really getting regular people to read uh, these things that I think that that everybody should should know. You know, should own yeah. in their head. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the great. Uh, I think that's one of the great overlaps between our two uh, you know two projects. Uh, yours, of course, is much more <laughs> organized and noble and getting it out there than ours. But I think that idea that these are works that belong to everyone, and so it's important for people to avail themselves of them. Um, and uh, I, I think what's really what's really cool about what y'all do is providing that sort of that uh, not only by providing the you know the selected editions that you actually so as part of your subscription not only do you get the reminders and the Socratic dialogue stuff you actually get the actual books you know sent to you yeah um, and that kind of um, that kind of structure that's provided by that that kind of sort of uh, accountability to yourself and your uh, your fellow students. Uh, really helps provide a lot of that structure and helps uh, helps people accomplish you know reading these on the face of them pretty intimidating works. I mean, before you actually grapple with them. I, I mean, when we were starting out, when you know, Claude first pitched it to me, you know, to do the Cannonball, like I'm you know I'm the layman of the two of us, and I was a little bit like mm, I don't know, am I up to the task? But having that kind of uh, that kind of accountability to another person that you're involved in the project with is just such a it's such an important aspect of actually being. Uh, sort of giving yourself the self-discipline, teaching yourself the discipline to actually, uh, to, you know, to read and stuff. And then honestly, I'll tell y'all once you actually get into reading these books, I mean, there's a reason why they've, you know, stood the test of time as, as interesting works you can get stuff out of. <laughs> you know, like, there's really, it's, it's, it's amazing just how, uh, just how gripping it can be. So that's really, that's really awesome, Scott, that you, you know, that y'all are, uh, you have this program out there that, uh, that's reaching so many people. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more, I think, after after our kind of conversation here um, about. Uh, or no, I'll go ahead and, and put it at the top here. Um, y'all actually do have a, a promotion going via uh, via our podcast, you know, the Cannonball, you know, through Agora, so yeah. that uh, there's actually a promo code that. So if y'all are listening, and this sounds like up your alley, which I I would presume a lot of our listeners absolutely would be. If uh, Wait, I want to, I want to inter- I want to interrupt you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I've I've done a lot of podcasts, uh, you know, talking about great books and talking uh-huh. about these big these big ideas in these books. And I'm gonna I'm gonna indict all of your listeners that <laughs> right now they're listening to us. I think that a lot of times people listen to podcasts about these heady things, mm-hmm. and for them that suffices for actually reading them and knowing <laughs> those books in their head. I, th- right? I think you're right, and I'll be the first to tell them, man, listen to me blather on about the Divine Comedy is no we're close to the experience of reading it. <laughs> no, nope, I mean, nope, not, not by a long shot. 
No, the conversation we're going to have about Burke here ain't even the shadow on the cave wall. That's like, right. It, so you've got to, you know, I listen to the podcast too. I listen to audiobooks. I listen to the, you know, what is it? The, uh, the, the great courses, um, mm-hmm. you know, the teaching companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff. But all of it pales to, you know, we're actually picking up one of these books that you and Claude work through and actually doing that for yourself. You know, mm-hmm. the, for, you know, you can only touch just a little bit of it in this audio format. Oh yeah. And, and, and so they get the fullness of the thing if they actually do it themselves. Plus, they get the co- accomplishment. You know, when it's done, you can look at that giant book that you cl- you you read and, and see the notes and the margins, mm-hmm. and you did it. You know, yeah. it's a big deal. <laughs> Absolutely, and it, it is a big deal. I, I can tell you from experience. Like I feel, you know, I felt very accomplished actually uh, reading these things. And so yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, man. Like it's you know, listening to some other people talk about it is nowhere close to the actual you know, the, 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 the cognitive experience of, you know, reading a text for yourself, encountering these thoughts from another human being from, you know, X number of years ago. And it's this widely differing and disparate civilizations and ways of, and modes of being. Um, yeah, there's, there's no, uh, there's, there is no substitute for it. So yeah, if that sounds like something that you want to be a part of, you can sign up for online great books. And I believe there's, so there's a promo code for cannonball listeners, which is C A N. Is that correct? Scott? Yes, sir. All right. Yeah, so yeah. you go to onlinegreatbooks.com, and you click on Join Now, and when you go to check out, if you enter in that promo code CAN, you'll get 25% off your first three months. If, perchance, you go there and enrollment's closed, uh, you can go and join the, the waiting list, mm-hmm. and then when you check in, you'll still, you'll still get that, uh, that discount. And the next enrollment will be open October 15th, 2018, and then the one after that will be January 1st, 2019. Fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, so keep that in your calendars, y'all. And uh, but yeah, so sort of move on to the to the meat of this, um, and and mm. give y'all a taste of uh, of what you're in store with for <laughs> for reading the great. Let's books wrestle. Who, yeah, let's wrestle, man. Um, so we we picked out a couple of a couple of texts, which um, well, actually, I think when when uh, when the idea was first floated, Scott, you suggested that you wanted to talk about Edmund Burke and and the reflections on the French Revolution, kind of his uh, most famous uh, work, the one that tends to be most uh, most cited to the present day and so you were like well and what would you you know what would you like us like to talk about and i thought to myself i you know i i've, I've never read the only the only voltaire i had ever actually read cover to cover had been candide like you know and it's a short and easy one and it's a, you know it's a great one like it, you know it's 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 a great work so i thought to myself you know we have the the englishman writing about the french let us have the Frenchman writing about the English. So uh, we went where I went with uh, Voltaire's letters on the English, which I had read excerpts from back in college. And I thought to myself, that's one that I want to dive a little more into. And so that was my assignment for Scott was, was Voltaire here and letters on the English um, is uh, it, it's, it's an interesting work. And it's also a very like, I don't want to call it like a bathroom reader, but you could totally use it as a bathroom reader because <laughs> it really is these very, oh, yeah. it's these succinct pieces. They, they were literally sort of letters uh, that it was, you know, that, that, that he intended to be published. It wasn't exactly personal correspondence, but it was correspondence. Uh, so it tends to be, you know, rather pithy, but it's uh, Voltaire. This is when he was living in and the heat had gotten a little too much on him for <laughs> criticizing the French system of government. And so he hopped across the, uh, the channel to stay in England for a while until the, uh, you know, until the five O was, uh, was off his, uh, right. off his scent. Um, so th- and this was between, I want to say it's in the 1720s. Yeah. He was writing in the 1720s 
And so it wasn't published until the, but it wasn't published until the 1730s. I want to say 17, 1733. Yeah, there it is in my notes. Um, so this is this is you know a generation before uh, Burke's writing, but I still feel like they're kind of, um, and they were contemporaries. Their 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 times did overlap, so it's not exactly contemporaneous. But I, I still you know it's 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 in the same kind of wheelhouse. Um, so I guess my my question to you, Scott is uh, mm. what kind of impression did Voltaire's letters on the English leave to you? Or I guess I should say, I'm sorry, before before I get into that impression, I should say that, uh, that sort of the content of the letters is, uh, for the first part, uh, Voltaire is commenting upon the religious situation in England. Specifically, he's very interested in the dissenting factions or, or the dissenting denominations. At this time in England, there's, of course, the established uh, Church of England, the Anglican Church. And anyone who did not... Um, uh, there were a number of denominations and sects that didn't comport with the Church of England, and they were known as dissenters. Um, and this is, includes things like the Quakers, or uh, I guess a little later on you would get Methodists and, and, and Baptists, but there were some other some sects there. And uh, so, so later on, he talks about uh, Voltaire's writing letters about the Parliament, the system of government that the English have uh, on trade. And then I think very interestingly, and fitting with this sort of uh, Enlightenment polymath uh, persona, his Enlightenment polymath, uh, uh, reputation, he writes a lot about the great advances in science that are going on in England at the time, because this is also around the time that Sir Isaac Newton is at his most active. So that's kind of the broad outline of what's going on in the letters. And uh, and Scott, what what kind of what jumped out at you most? What left the biggest impression, uh, Voltaire, here in his letters for you? Well, first, I, I read the Penguin Classics Voltaire Letters mm-hmm. in England little paperback here, uh, in case I give any page numbers or anything anybody cares to follow. Um, man, man, I thought he was great fun. I think you're, um, I, I think you're t- calling it bathroom readings, right? Yeah. You know, it, it, it flows. It's fun. It's almost like reading Mark Twain. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he's, I think, he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's really funny, and he's not scared to put his finger in somebody's eye. Uh, nothing's off the board, whether it's religion or uh, individual individual politicians or Newton. I mean, he, nothing's off nothing's off the table for this guy. And and he's just smart and funny. Uh, it is, you know, little. They are little. They're letters. They're short pieces. Mm-hmm. They're all self contained. They're very interesting and fun. And it, and it kind of reads like a travel diary, also. Uh, it's a delight to read. We're not even talking about the ideas in it yet, but it's a delight to read. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was fascinated by the the even though even though England had a state religion, he was fascinated by their religious freedom and the types of religious characters that were there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he starts off talking about the the Quakers who are, you know, we we know what the Quaker uh, stereotype is, right? It's the guy on the oatmeal box, <laughs> right? right? And, that's, and that's really kind ha- of the right, and that's kind of the basically the end of most people's knowledge of the Quakers as a, as a, as an expression of, of the Christian religion, really. It's like, we think of the guy on the, the oatmeal can and like, Oh yeah. And I think maybe Pennsylvania has something to do with it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Just these stayed sober people in, and, and, and he, uh, he, he wrote, uh, he wrote about them very admiringly, you mm-hmm. know? And I think it, I think that even though those were people who were Quakers and they weren't, you know, the predominant, you know, members of the predominant sect, the Anglicans, um, they're very English, you know, in their in their uh, they're sort of hierarchical. Even though they are the you know they do like lay preaching and stuff, but mm-hmm. um, they're very proper. They have excellent work ethic. They're ambitious people who take care of their own business, and uh, he portrays them as very English people. 
it, it's 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 great. And then when he talks about the Anglican clergy, I mean, they're certainly very English too. He says mm-hmm. uh, the Englishman as a free uh, an Englishman as a free man can go to heaven by whatever route he likes. So <laughs> they're, they're not <laughs> even though they have a state religion. He says you know that they're actually pretty. Um, they're pretty forgiving and pretty tolerant of those other of other sects. Um, yeah, it's, it's later. Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead, Scott. Uh, and he says that uh, the clergy in England are almost all married. Mm-hmm. And he says the uncouth manner they have acquired in the university and the lack of feminine society there means that a, usually a bishop has to make do with his own wife in England. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's one thing I really love about Voltaire is the, um, especially in this letters on the English, because of course his, his audience is back at home, right? He's, he's writing these right. for a French audience. And so he's like, Oh, this is, it's almost like the kind of, um, well, it's like that other kind of enlightenment, uh, trope of the noble savage where the writer picks a, a, a presumed to be more primitive society than his own in order to you know, exemplify them to point out all the hypocrisies and corruption of his own society. I think Rousseau among the French was kind of the most, you know, leaned on that the most. I think it was kind of funny that Voltaire sort of used the English as, as his noble savages uh, in, in that kind of in that rhetorical, that, that sort of that rhetorical space, you know, to, 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 to I, I contrast. I think Park would take French. exception there. Well, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> as, and as we all should, the, the, the whole stereotypical idea of the noble savage is one that yeah, we need. We need to actually, you know, it's it's not that great. Um, well, he's certainly looking at England as an as a laboratory for some ideas that that yeah. that Fran, that the French could possibly learn from. You know, yeah. in this letter on the Presbyterians, he says. If there were only one religion in England, there would be a danger of despotism. If there were two, they'd cut each other's throats. But there are thirty, and they live in peace and happiness. Hmm. Yeah, and and you know they're having big problems with corruption in the Catholic Church in France at this time. Mm-hmm. So he's really interested in how all of these weird sects, including Catholics, aren't warring in the streets all over the English Isle. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and he manages to talk about it and still be fun, unlike Burke. <laughs> There's right. nothing fun about Burke. <laughs> no, Burke is dead serious all the time. Burke is the, uh, what is the, you know. The he's guy your crazy uncle. He's your crazy uncle. He's the guy who's always like stepped into the thread like, hey, too much fun going on here. All right. This is serious right. discussion time. Um, what I thought was interesting with Voltaire, especially on religion, especially with the Quakers, is that um, you really get the sense, like kind of the stereotype of Voltaire is that he was kind of unendingly um, hostile to organize religion and and that shows up a little bit in some of these letters and some you know some asides here and there but what i think especially he's talking to the quakers he was he seemed pretty fascinated with the idea of the the, well like you mentioned the lay preaching like there was a much more egalitarian um sense at least in worship with the quakers like you mentioned like the quakers themselves are still very tied up in the english class system these these were not your uh these these weren't the levelers or the diggers of uh you know <laughs> a century earlier where there was some sort of radical experiments in England with uh, a more uh, sort of radical definition of egalitarianism, but they did take seriously this idea of egalitarianism within the body of the faithful, um, and I think that really struck a chord with Voltaire. Simply, and I and I think it, I think it highlights that Voltaire's was more anti-clerical than anti faith we might say like he Mm. and he himself was you know he he was in that mold of the well he's kind of the prototypical uh enlightenment deist like his conception of what the divine is was that it was very removed from our day-to-day life that it there was basically what like an aristotelian prime mover 
was kind of as far as he was willing to go for saying this, this is what I think, you know, God might be. Um, But I think that that, that's what I found most interesting. And that's what kind of jumped out at me the most in the, at least like sort of that first part of the letters on the English is how he was, he seemed legitimately very interested um, in, in these people's self-conception and these people's ways of going about things in a way that the kind of, um, I don't know, you might imagine a kind of snide and self-satisfied atheist today might not go about it. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But that, that, that really jumped out at me that like, I think it's, uh, you know, I think Voltaire as a, as a, as a man is much more, he's much more upset with the abuses of a religious hierarchy than with the idea of religion itself. Yeah, the, the, when he goes to the Quaker meeting and he sees the lay preaching, you know, they call themselves the Friends. Mm-hmm. And when he sees that, I, you know, there's a, there's a, I can imagine that he's having these proto, these prototypical thoughts of about the rights of men and this equality, yeah, <laughs> that that later crops up in, uh, in their bloody violent revolution. Right, but, right. Uh, that can, that, that Burke has the, things to say about too. <laughs> yeah, but you can you can see the you can see the beginnings of it. You yeah. Know, uh, man, and he's—I he, think he's generous. He can be biting and ugly sometimes to his opponents, but mm-hmm. he's not here. Uh, I yeah. think he has a love for the English, actually. I th- yeah, absolutely. And it really, I really—I I think it—I um, think in one of the uh, one ways it really shines through is in his um, his really just truly—I I don't know if this is the right word to, to use—but I was almost touched by how excited he was to report about Isaac Newton. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like it's really you get this kind of secondhand excitement from him because um, he wrote this whole letter, uh, the letter uh, what, 15 on attraction. So he's talking about Isaac Newton's um, universal gravitation, his theory of universal gravitation mm-hmm. or attraction. And um, and just the way he talks about it, he has that same kind of like almost like schoolboy excitement about like the way that this is you know like oh wow like isaac really cracked into something here and it's one of those it's one of those things you can read that like his history of science is something that i'm pretty interested in myself that i've done and i'm and again of the many things i'm a lay person in science is way up there like i'm a humanities man through and through don't ask me to actually do any science but i'm but i'm still interested in like the history of the uh sort of the philosophical bases and the ways in which the body of knowledge developed. Right. And it can be hard to capture. It it can be hard to access the kind of excitement that must've been going on in people's minds with each of these sort of great steps, like, you know, like Galileo reporting that there were satellites around Jupiter, you know, or, or, or Einstein's, you know, theory of general relativity upending the Newtonian universe, et cetera. So that's, what's pretty neat about, you know, reading a, a primary source from this time, this time of uh, these great strides being made in this understanding of the material universe by someone who was very interested in that topic. And he's getting me all hyped about it. <laughs> like you read it. Yeah. And, and like, you know, it, at least for me, it was like, I started sort of getting that, that secondhand excitement that like, wow, that must've, you know, no wonder it, in the, you know, it sort of gave a window into that enlightenment, like the, the, the the sort of enlightenment thinkers that really took it to the extreme with like, okay, using reason, we can absolutely figure everything out. And of course, you know, that, that's a project that's doomed to failure, but you can almost understand why they felt that way when you, when you understand that like, oh, wait a minute, there were guys that really were cracking the code on some stuff. Like I would get caught up in the excitement too. 
Yeah, I don't think there's. I don't think there'll ever be anything else happens like those discoveries that were that that mm-hmm. Newton made. Uh, I, I don't. I don't think that we can even. I, I mean, the internet ain't that. Landing on the moon isn't that. <laughs> no, you know? Yeah, landing I mean, on the moon was the, just was the like, fulfillment of Newton. Really, <laughs> it was just yeah, like taking what I mean, Newton it, did and running with it. I mean, since since maybe some guy was able to start and control fire, it's, right. it's probably the biggest deal. And, and and Voltaire was there. Yeah, and and you know, and he writes he writes about that with all the excitement as somebody who might. You know who might have you know actually gotten to go to the moon maybe with, and, and, <laughs> right. and he writes about Descartes and Newton and he kind of kind of uh, you know compares and contrasts those people uh, and then and then later on he he, he kind of well, he craps on the <laughs> the uh, Royal Society you know uh, there are the the science society in London that mm-hmm. Newton was a member of and Faraday and all these giants because anybody could join. Yeah, yeah. And the French societies weren't like that. And and he he's both super excited about all of those innovations that are coming from Newton and minds like that, but at the same time he doesn't really get it. Mm-hmm. He doesn't yeah, get yeah. that there was this <laughs> that there's this lay scientific and technological movement in England that will change the world forever. Like he's excited about the ideas, but he doesn't understand that this idea that the Quakers will have this lay led preaching is actually the same as James Watt working on steam engines and Newton with you know a candle and paper mm-hmm. unlocking the secrets of the universe. It's a democratic project mm-hmm. in England, and Voltaire's not quite ready for that yet. I don't think he doesn't. Yeah, quite get yeah, it. yeah. It's and the, and you know whether that's a matter of like uh, you know I'm not of a much of a Voltairist to to know, uh, but I, I would be curious to know whether that was whether that could be more of a reflection of just the kind of the hard coded Frenchness, he, you know, you, if you're raised in it, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to look outside of it. Or was there some sort of like, was, you know, was it in his, in his system of thought that he developed, did not, did that not have a place for that kind of more radically democratized notion of participation and uh, well, participation isn't quite the word I'm looking for. Um, it's just an entrepreneurial about. spirit in, in thought, in deed, yeah. in, in everything. You know, yeah. Uh, these British at this time are remarkable people. Not that the French weren't as well. I mean, but I mean, Voltaire clearly is, and some yeah, of these yeah. thinkers, Rousseau. But uh, man, but there's, I think know, you're right. There's definitely there's there's an energy going on in England that uh, that you know, of course, you know, there's there are reams and reams to be written on you know topics such as say the cause of the Industrial Revolution, which is in itself, you know, <laughs> if you're looking for the cause, mm. like yeah, you know, you're already going down parking down the wrong path. But I think there, I think you're right though that there is something there's something specific happening in the British Isles that is a kind of combination of these material and cultural and intellectual threats that Voltaire is. You're right, he's kind of plucking at, but he he can't quite grasp the implications of it, and he and I. You know, I guess he, he you know he won't live to see the full sort of mm. that fully bear fruit in this in the terms of the kind of global hegemony that this island will achieve for good or ill for a lot of the places that felt the uh, the brunt of it. But still, like you know, it's, it's a remarkable brew is happening there. Yeah, and I guess that makes a good actually that makes a good segue into our our English thinker that we're talking about, Edmund Burke. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Um, crusty Uncle Ed, man. Crusty Uncle Ed, man, who is there. He's also there in the cockpit. He's watching it happen. But he's also watching what's happening to Voltaire's France as the the kinds of uh, uh, contradictions and 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 the the riven society and the hidebound society that had been barely kept together in Voltaire's day has exploded in the in the uh, French Revolution, which is itself, you know, we could sit here all day talking about <laughs> the causes and ramifications of the yeah. French Revolution. Um, but we're specifically going to be talking about what Edmund Burke saw in it, and and this is. It's a fascinating work that I'd never, um, I guess, to sort of give kind of my personal history with this text. I, up until uh, reading this for my conversation with you, Scott, I'd only ever read Burke in kind of summary or epitome, or I had read excerpts, like sort of extended excerpts, but still only uh, in excerpt. Um, there so are a lot of was... people who hate Edmund Burke. <laughs> there are, and and I and I will say to put my cards on the table, it's usually in the it, it's usually been in the mode of uh, sort of uh, explicating the I I've yeah I've normally read Burke in the in the sense of someone is arguing against someone else who's claiming Burke as some sort of foundation or, or forebear, and so I was really that's one reason I was really really interested to get at the and I'm really glad you suggested Burke because it was one of those things that like I've been meaning for a very long time to actually get at this kind of source code to use a really right. awful analogy um, <laughs> itself. And so it was a really, it was a really fascinating, uh, it was a really fascinating exercise in, in Burke himself. Um, and I don't know too much about his own biography other than that. He was of course, extremely crusty. Um, but I'm, I'm calling something up. Was he, he was uh, Anglo Irish. Is that correct? Like he was actually right. not. Yeah. So he wasn't what we might call English English, although I guess to explain who the Anglo-Irish are, this was a sort of class of 
persons who are kind of, I don't know, you might, you might call them the kind of the native colonial overlords of Ireland at this time, because these were transplanted sort of ethnically and culturally English people who formed the kind of dominant landowner class in Ireland at this time, um, but had also sort of halfway gone native. <laughs> by the That's time right. of birth. so yeah yeah so london would have would have seen him maybe as a as a rural rube yeah exactly he, he would have been he would have been like something their, uh something like your dumb he cousin been, he would have been someone he would have been someone tainted by his right. proximity to the irish who at this point were subject to some extremely repressive laws that the uh that the english had sort of placed over the cat specifically the catholic irish we should say um, right. So, so Edmund Burke is interesting in that, in that kind of come from that Anglo-Irish background. In that, he's a bit of an outsider to the English themselves. He's he's a little bit of an outsider to England and France when he's when he's writing his reflections on it. And I and I and again, I, I don't know. I'm not enough of a Burkist to to know, and I, I'm not enough. I, of course, I never feel like I have enough knowledge or context about anything no. to, <laughs> to give any kind of, you know, uh, uh, definitive statement on anything. But I, I thought that was an interesting okay. sort of wrinkle as I was reading. But I don't know. I, I'm, I'm blathering on right now. Um, but if uh, Scott, if you could just sort of give us uh, our listeners kind of the rundown of what what is the reflections on the revolution in France? Why was it written? And what's kind of the the, the overview here? I'm going to get on my soapbox for a minute about pedagogy. <laughs> Oh sure. Like you were talking about you, you'd read you know these secondary sources and these expositions of mm-hmm. Burke and so on, and I have I, I'm 43 and for some reason I always thought I'd live to 86. <laughs> sure. I, so I don't know why, but I always thought I'd live. So I'm halfway done, and, and there's so many books that I want to read, and I've been led astray so many times that I've resolved that I'm never ever ever going mm-hmm. to read a book about a book again. That's, if I see something, yeah, that, yeah. if something jogs my interest or piques my interest, I'm not going to read the secondary source. I'm actually going to go see what Edmund Burke has to say. Yeah, and um, a lot of times, secondary sources we feel like we need those secondary sources to uh, give us some insight or help us. But I think that these great books, like the ones on the list that you guys work from, mm-hmm. and the great books of the Western World list, they're so great that they can meet you where you are. And there's something in this Burke, and there's something in this Voltaire for you, no matter who you are. And if you come to Burke clean, mm-hmm. you can see him for what he is. Um, he's the father of conservatism. He's often called that. But the word conservative is so poisoned now. Mm-hmm. Um, and he truly is conservative in that he wants to conserve. Right, right. I, I think I think that's now, that's you hit on something there that there we have these we have these labels for certain. Uh, we have these we have labels that we apply to certain political tendencies and whatnot and and they are applied through a course of time but that itself is really misleading a lot of the time because <laughs> the, right. the the kinds of ideas that can be represented by this or that label like there, there's a thread that, that can be followed but also you would be you'd be you'd be doing yourself and and others a a massive disservice to assume that some sort of set of policy preferences or or tendencies that have that label today match one-to-one what that label has always meant or, or, or what have you. And then, yeah, yeah. So that, like, that's, that's, I'm sorry. Yeah. Again, I'm, I'm kind of blathering now, but yeah, fa- no, he's that's generally fine. regarded as father of conservatism and, and you're right. Like, cause he did want to conserve. He saw in the French revolution, the, I get to use it to use a rather, uh, a crass colloquialism. He saw the baby going out with the bathwater. So he was interested in yes. talking about, well, what is the baby? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, uh, the Voltaire book 
is mm, a firsthand account of what is going on in England at that time. And it's mm-hmm. very much about Voltaire. The Burke's book, while it is about Burke, is chock full of fascinating ideas. Um, and there's a lot we could talk about in here. But one of the one, one of the most interesting things about this is he has educated me about what the English government was at that time. Mm-hmm. In 1688, it had a nasty revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, killed their king, brought in a Hanover, uh, a king from you know, the house of Hanover. And um, so he, he's writing about 100 years after this revolution. But the, the government that he describes in England is essentially maybe the only emergent government left when I mm-hmm. say emergent, like our government is not an emergent government. There were men who sat down with pen and paper right, and signed it out of whole cloth. <laughs> yeah. they, they, they pulled out yeah. the, the compass and the protractor and they set yeah. to work. Yeah, They designed it. But the government of Burke's England had evolved slowly since 1066. Yeah. And, and he says, you know, this has emerged because it, it has utility. It has emerged because it suits us. And, he's, and he doesn't think it's perfect at all. Mm-hmm. But he says... You know, the wisdom of the ages has gone into this thing, and you best be careful. And then he then he goes on to make two hundred pages <laughs> of arguments <laughs> about about why you had better carefully handle it carefully. Right, right. And uh, I think it, I don't think it matters who you are or on what side of any political argument that you stand on. I think Burke's idea of proceeding with caution and Burke's ideas. Not his ideas, but his explanation of what how high the stakes are if you get it wrong, mm-hmm. or something that everybody really needs to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's I think that's right. Like the, I think that was really one of the most valuable things that uh, that I got out of Burke, or rather, you know, the, the uh, an idea that I, I myself would place a lot of value in that Burke expresses rather is that idea of being aware of what the stakes are, being aware of the impacts that will be made on on people's material lives you know by by any sort of uh given practice or whatnot and i think you you bring up the um the uh the glorious revolution the you know the the 1688 uh revolution um which which burke refers to you know quite a few times and i think that that was you know we note in sort of the popular historiography like if you've heard of it at all you've probably heard of it referred to as the bloodless revolution um and it was something that everyone was very proud of and whatnot i think it's it might have something to do with Burke's Anglo-Irish roots. The fact that, you know, the bloodless revolution was anything but bloodless in Ireland. That thing was fought out in Ireland. They had the, 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 the Jacobite cause. Uh, they, it was, I mean, I think they had like open revolt for at least two years, uh, sort of desultory uh, actions after that. It led to a total um, sort of civic collapse. And you had, this was, uh, this was also a heyday of highwaymen <laughs> and highway robbers. So you mm-hmm. actually get a lot of, uh, a lot of the highwaymen ballads are set during this time. So I think it's kind of interesting that um, what, what is popularly known as, as the bloodless revolution, Burke is remember, you know, Burke has an awareness of how it was not all that bloodless. And uh, and I think that might, that, I think that informs his, uh, his, this, this stance of caution really in, in a, in a way that someone, you know, English, English might not have experienced it that way. Right. Yeah. And, and that English, um, that, that revolution of 1688, that was nasty and yeah. he recognized as nasty is 
the very beginning of the American Revolution, in fact, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And and he is actually sympathetic to the American uh, the American cause. Mm-hmm. And you know, and he has conservative arguments for why, for why those the Americans had, uh, you know, uh, should have had uh, self determination and self rule. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he, you know, he's not completely stayed, and he does make arguments for how uh, how to properly change things. Right? right, right. He doesn't just want to pour everything in concrete, cast it in concrete, and we just live out our days with a a, a stodgy government. Uh, but I, I mean, I think you know when I read it, there's a lot of there are a lot of details that one could quibble with. Mm-hmm. But just his his anti utopian stance and his caution with change is I, I don't know how anybody could disagree with that. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I think the um, I, and it's and, you know, and this kind of again sort of the interesting thing about about Burke is the. Uh, or at least one one thing that that jumped out a little bit at me is a kind of more he he did have kind of a more of a defense of uh what we might call i don't know and again you, you correct me if i'm if i'm interpreting this incorrectly or or if you know if you feel like i'm getting it wrong it, it seems like though that he you know much more than, than voltaire say even though you know voltaire was suspicious of <laughs> the, the more radical democratizing of of uh, great britain that he was you know seeing around that time but he see but burke is is um He's very defensive of the kind of uh, social hierarchy that mm-hmm. the, which is one of the reasons why I think people are surprised that he supported the uh, American independence movement was because at least in rhetoric, um, the uh, sort of the independence movement, especially with its, you know, leading lights like say Thomas Paine, um, really promulgated a much more radical egalitarian vision, of, at least for a particular subset of the residents of the colonies, you know, you're talking about property owning, uh, males basically, but at this, but still like it was still a, for the time, a radically egalitarian, um, sort of rhetoric going on, justifying a lot of this stuff that, that Burke himself, I, I think is less bullish on than one might be expected for someone who would support the American war of independence. Um, so I don't know. What, what do you think about that reading, Scott? Like, I, cause that's, that's something oh, I, that I, I took away from, but I think you, you've delved more deep, deeply into Burke. You might have something, some, some no, perspective on that. That's true. You know, he's a, he's a monarchist and he's a yeah. uh, British, he's an apologist for the British monarchy. Um, and he, you know, and he makes a lot of arguments for why that's the case. It's not just patriotism and blindness that's put him there. Um, but my favorite of these, and the one that was kind of the most compelling to me, is, you know, you, you get a class of people who have a very, very long-term interest in the, in the, in the uh, proper stewardship of the country. Mm-hmm. And those are the nobles. They, have a proper, they actually have a property right in it, mm-hmm. and their progeny benefit if they do a good job. You know, and so they and they're trained for it from day one. Now, I'm not yeah, yeah, that was right, but he that, says, that that idea like, of the uh, the uh, that there is a class of people who are trained to be the the sort of leaders of the realm. I guess to be the that, government. Yeah, yeah. They're trained to govern. Yeah, and you know, he says it's the family business. And <laughs> if they're, right. and, you know, and if they're not good at it, they don't get to keep the they don't get to keep the business. You yeah, know? and they've gotten pretty good at it. I mean, and I, I'm, I'm being flippant here, and he makes a much more eloquent argument than yeah. I do, of course. And then here's the kick in one. This is the really good one. He says, do you really want to be governed by your peers? 
<laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you, I'll ask you podcast listeners. You've been to Walmart. Yeah. You've been to Walmart. You want to be governed by your peers? I mean, it's a, some days it's, you know, it seems like the, the only right way to do things. And then some days you're like, man, I'm, I'm glad there are some stop gaps between, <laughs> hey, between us hey, and, and full on radical hey, democracy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an I've internal on, struggle. I've been on that. Tumblr. Yeah. I've been on Tumblr. I <laughs> don't want everybody to have a vote. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I, 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 I understand, I understand the position that is. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and, and like I said, he makes a you know he makes a two hundred and fifty page argument there for why that why that might not be a good idea to be governed by the peers and, um, but yeah, you know, he he is a, he is an apologist for the for the monarchy mm-hmm. and and again, a lot of the arguments are about the fact that the monarchy that they have, which is a weird hybrid, mm-hmm. at that time they have a parliament, and the, you know they control the money and the king controls you know some administrative aspects it's really this weird thing that's distinctly british and it emerged over time through necessity mm-hmm. and when they when a necessity arose the system changed and they rose to meet the necessity and he's like mm, it's pretty good i don't know that we need to kill five to ten percent of our population to change this government right right <laughs> right yeah, I think and, uh, um, Voltaire actually had a good line about it in the in the letters. Where I'm paraphrasing because I can't find it right in my in my notes here, but he said something like, um, "So that you know, in in England, like the yes, there there is a monarch. He is, but he is fully empowered to do good, and he is restrained in his capability to do evil." Right. Um, which so I think that's kind of that yeah that kind of ideal, or rather, what you know what Voltaire would see, and think what Burke would see as this you know ideal sort of mode for a monarch which was which was again in, in contrast to the uh to the absolutist model which had been in france had been established for about a uh, what 150 years or so by the time the uh the revolution happened and uh was considered you know at the time to be the 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 you know the the wave of the future <laughs> you know, like this was it, it was considered it was considered progressive and um and rationalizing to be centralizing your your absolutist monarch power, uh, and of course that didn't quite work out so well for the French, as Burke is happy to <laughs> point out. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. After, after mm-hmm. reading Burke, yeah. okay, well, we're here in the United States, and we went to school in the United States, and we're told that democracy and republicanism, you know, republican democracies, that's the pinnacle. Uh, <laughs> Of government, mm-hmm. of governmental systems. So, after reading Burke, are you satisfied to say that that's as good as it gets? <laughs> um, well, I, well, I mean, I wouldn't be satisfied to say that's as that's it was as good as it gets before I read Burke, um, and then uh, and then afterward, though, also like a uh, I, uh, I, I guess to you know to 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 lay again to lay my cards on the table to use that. Uh, that hoary old phrase again uh i am myself a pretty committed egalitarian you know in 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 my heart and in my thought and so i I spend a lot of my sort of political energy thinking about ways in which to i guess how how might a more egalitarian society be responsibly developed um and that's kind of so that's my kind of compass you know that's that's what i go by and uh, so to that extent, like, I, I don't think I'll ever come around to the, to the Burkean vision altogether, but one thing well, that it really I'm not actually asking about the Burkean oh, okay, yeah, yeah. vision. Oh, but See, whether, whether representative democracy is the best we can do. Yeah. Cause, cause to yeah. Burke for him, 
this monarchy that they had in England was mm-hmm. the analog to the way you know most Americans think that American you know democracy is you know they mm-hmm. think that's the pinnacle of you know government. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you, you can't yeah. do any better than that. And you know, and Burke's like, no. I mean, he said that this is it, to me that was very interesting. You I, you just rarely see anybody. You, there aren't very many um, voices out there mm-hmm. that aren't Marxists, really. Mm-hmm. And I'm not I'm not being slick here no sure i mean that's really the only indictment you hear of our government governmental system right right and so you're right you like it's, Burke, it's the... you get a different indictment it's interesting yeah, yeah exactly i mean and, and you're right like the uh there's this uh you're right that one of the very few kind of actual you know systematic appraisals of you know a current like little little l little d liberal democracy does come from you know a marxist analytical perspective or a leftist analytical perspective rather and so it 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 does seem yeah I think I think you're right that is it is very it was very interesting and very instructive to get a a similar well not similar to get a, <laughs> to get a critique of that system from a different perspective uh, and it's uh, yeah it, it's it's the kind of um, honestly it's it's well it's the kind of it's the kind of primary source reading that uh that i think lends itself best to i don't know to, to generating a sort of to creating in yourself a kind of vigorous and rigorous thinker i guess, I guess is what i'm trying to say i'm you know you, you get you know you've had a conversation with me scott you know that i can ramble on at times while i'm trying to discover the point that i'm trying to make <laughs> but but i guess what i am trying to say is that um no i i would i would i would not be willing to uh to stake out you know, on my life that uh, the representative democracy has currently constituted in most of the, uh, what we know of as the little L, little D liberal democracies is the best possible uh, uh, political arrangement. Um, you know, and I guess the real question is, you know, what what's the responsible way to find something that would be better? And I think the, 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 the Burkean, I think that's the great value in the, in the Burkean ethos is that kind of, Burke, I think Burke would tell you, I don't know, but you right. better go slow and easy. Exactly. That's exactly people it. People are going to get hurt. That's exactly what I was going to say. That's, I think the, the real value in the Burkean analysis is this, um, you know, at, at, at every point, bear in mind, you're talking about real people's lives, real people's material existence. So whatever you're talking about, you better make damn sure you cross your T's and dot your eyes. <laughs> You know, when I when yeah. I talked to Claude about this, mm-hmm. you know, he, he said he said that he he thought that Burke okay, the French Revolution is a very rational project of the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. right? It was it was born out of theory, right? There were these theoretical rights of men that they had discussed and uh, you know, people had different ways of deriving those theoretical rights of men and depending on which rights those you, you settled on kind of might direct the direction of the revolution. So it's, it's all theory. It's all heady. It's all up in your, all up in your head, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and Claude's like, you know, Burke is making this personal. He's inter, he's, he said he's putting affect into this. Hmm. Yeah. You know, he, he's pointing out that real, when you make these changes, real people get hurt. Yeah. And, uh, and I hadn't read that that way, but I think Claude's exactly right. Yeah. And, and you wouldn't think on the face of it, especially with, you know, how Burke is portrayed popularly, mm-hmm. that he would be the face of this sort of, um, I don't know, this sort of empathetic view. Yeah, <laughs> this, yeah. You know, but, but, but he is. Yeah. And, and Rousseau might not be. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, I think you're right that it's, it's almost a kind of, um, 
it's almost a kind of historical irony that Burke can be claimed uh, as a founder by certain strains of thought that um, that that tend not to value this idea of compassion and empathy in in, in political terms, um, and uh, because I think and you know as always all of these books all these ideas are much more complicated and much more nuanced than any than anyone telling you what they said is going to be. And I think right there, you've hit upon the real value in, uh, in actually engaging with these works. And I, and I think right there, that's, I don't know. I, th I think we hit upon the real, Hey man, that's, that's the route that we have in common with our two projects here. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Um, you go out and read for yourselves, see for yourselves, people. And so if you're a, a listener to the cannonball, um, or if you're listening to any of the fine podcasts on Agora podcast network, you are someone who is curious about the world. You're someone who is curious about their fellow citizens, about the society they live in. Dive deep, man. Grab those uh, foundational texts by the horns. Read them for yourself. And I can't really think of a better way to uh, to get started on that and to provide yourself with the structure to do it than online great books. Uh, so, Scott, thank you so much for having this conversation with us. And I, I tell everyone again, um, what's the best way to – it's just onlinegreatbooks.com. Is that correct? Just That's the URL? That is the one. That's right. Okay. There you go, and you can sign up. If nothing else, go on the VIP waiting list. We'll send you a digest of our reading list. But you've got to read these books. The books that you guys are talking about here on Cannonball, mm -hmm. the books that we talk about, most of the same books, they are great books for a lot of reasons. And one of them is they are actually – if, if they weren't written so well and if they weren't so beautiful, they wouldn't have made it. People yeah. copied these books down by hand, by candlelight, on dead sheep <laughs> so that you and <laughs> right. I could have them. You know, it was a yeah. lot of work for for Plato to get to us. Yeah. Thousands and tens of thousands of man hours for him to get to us. Yeah. And the reason they went through that effort is because he was worth it. Yeah. And if you don't read it, if you... If you watch Game of Thrones instead of reading one of these, <laughs> <laughs> you're crapping on those monks who copied that by hand so that you right. could have it. <laughs> there's there's always the balance to be struck. I mean, for me, like you know, yes, I I, I am reading the, these great books for the Cannonball, but I also got to have my trash. But but yeah, man, uh, that's I think that's well, I think it's part of what's cool about online great books is that you provide that uh, that structure to help people fit it all in with everything. It's just three hours of reading a week. Yeah, anybody can really do that. I think that's uh, that's yeah. terrific. But yeah, but remember, y'all, if you go and uh, you sign up, use the uh, promo code CAN to get 25% off. And that also helps support us uh, over here at the Cannonball so that we can get uh, Josh a really nice present for Producers Day. Um, mm. But it's When's just Producers uh, Day. It's, I mean, it probably is at some point. I'll have to look it up. <laughs> every every day's producer. Every day's producer's day. We love Josh that much. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Scott. This has been a really fantastic conversation, and uh, I'll see everybody on the Cannonball. And uh, y'all, please check out online great books. Thanks. <laughs>